This is a podcast about our lived experience, which unfortunately includes infant death and subsequent mental health struggles. Please take good care of yourself and only listen if this content feels safe for you right now. We'll still be here when you're ready. Hi, I'm Judith. And I'm Alina. We both lost babies to SIDS in winter 2021. In the throes of grief, I reached out to a stranger on the internet and our friendship was born. In the years since, we've been working hard to survive, rebuild, and navigate the continual challenges that have come our way, including divorce, job loss, dating while bereaved, moving multiple times, health scares, pregnancy and parenting a living child, starting new jobs, and so much more. We are tired. Happily Ever After is out of the question for us, but this podcast documents our journeys to happier ever after because we believe life after loss is worth living. So join us as we laugh, cry, cry until we laugh. <laughs> Welcome to As Long As I'm Living podcast. We're so glad you're here. And Jamie what? listens to the podcast. And, oh my I God, do. do you? And I, I do, and I love it so much. Huh. And she'll text <laughs> me like a few weeks later. She'll be like, I just listened to this episode and I have a few thoughts I want to discuss with you. I know. I'll be behind and then I'll, I'll text Judith like, I, I just heard the one from six weeks ago. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this week, it's even better. Sometimes I do say that. Let me open the door to my office because then I get better Wi-Fi, but... um. I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you. It's been I'm so happy to be here. I really admire the work that you both are doing and um, just in awe of you in general in life. So, <laughs> well, let okay, me give so, you my, let me give you yeah, the, spiel. Give the spiel. We record um, audio and video, but we only release the audio. This is not a video podcast. You do not have to worry about what you look like. After we're done recording, you're going to hear me say, okay, I'm stopping the recording. Keep your browser open, like in a panic, because what happens is it records the audio locally. When I stop the recording, it's going to upload it to the cloud. And we have had issues with guests in the past, Judith's mom, <clears throat> who <laughs> left the close the browser and then we lost the audio. So just, okay. I, I'm, I'll remind you at the end, but um, okay. just no prefacing now. And then the last thing is... Um, as we're recording, if you're like, oh, I don't want to include that, just be like, oh, you know, we're talking about this, but I don't want to include it in the episode. Or if after we record, you're like, you know, we talked about that and I don't want to include it, just send Judith a message and we'll edit totally. it out. And if yeah. I say something to Judith, like, I can't believe you said that detail from work or that name of the person that we shouldn't be talking about. <laughs> I wouldn't. But I actually was going to ask you, I mean, do you want us to say that you that we work together? Would you rather, like, not mention that? It's totally up to you. I'm completely fine with whatever you're comfortable with. Okay. Well, then let's get started. I'm excited. Yay. Hey, awesome. Okay. So the way we usually start is by introducing ourselves. And I'll say, like, hi, I'm I'm Judith. I'm Aiden's mom. And then Alina says. So, hi, everybody. Uh, this is Alina Quinn's mom. And I'm here with Judith, Aiden's mom. And our guest, Jamie. Yay. Jamie, you've got a long list, but <laughs> how do you who's like mom are you? Yourself? Yeah. Who's mom? <laughs> you're a lot of mom. Um, so my child who passed away, um, is love and She's love's I'm, mom. <laughs> yes. And I have living children as well. Um, and yeah, I was going to say, so why don't you tell, like, how, tell us about your family. Why don't you introduce yourself in your family? However you mm -hmm. want to describe that. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, I'm Jamie and, um, I, in my parenting journey, um, have had, I've, as Judith knows, I've been pregnant seven times. Um, and I have four living children, um, including a son named Lev, who um, passed away in 2008, which is really hard to believe that's been so many years. 
Um, and that was sort of the beginning of the parenting journey. Um, and after Lev, I went on to thankfully have four um, beautiful, healthy children who are living and who I'm grateful for every day. Um, and along the way, I also had a couple of earlier pregnancy losses. So um, seven pregnancies and four living children is sort of how I sum it up. I remember one of the reasons why I really wanted to speak to you is because you one time said this thing that really hit me when you said, um, when people talk to me and they ask me how many kids I have, I'll say I have four kids at home. And then you said, but if they just ask one question further, if they scratch just a little deeper, it'll come out that I have a son who passed and I've had two miscarriages and that it hasn't been, it doesn't look like it does on the outside. And I think a lot about that because I myself, whether we're in work calls or my friend, wherever it is, I almost feel like people, if they just push one little second further, they would get this entire story from me, you know, and I have to contain that. Alina, do you feel that also? Oh my God, absolutely. I have this new job and I have this photo of my son back here because everybody else has photos of their kids. Um, and, you know, every once in a while someone's like, oh, is that your son? And I say, yes. And then, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, how old is he? And I say, oh, he died. But also if they don't ask that follow-up question, he's just my son, which he is. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Like that little scratch. Jamie, do you remember when you said that to me? I do. I do. And and I'll also say that um, if it's okay to share that um, one of the first things that I learned about Judith, I believe, was that she is the mother of a son who passed away. Um, yeah. And but I, I I would not have known had it not come up kind of in conversation, Judith and I worked together. And so um, it kind of came up in conversation and immediately I sort of jumped on it and reached out to her <laughs> and said, like, oh, my God, I, I, I heard that you went through this and I'm so sorry. Um, but I think that, you know, Judith presents as a, like a very sort of normal person who, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. <laughs> Um, yep. And does an incredible job of keeping herself together, despite all of the craziness of life. Um, and so, but but that window of of having that opportunity to connect with someone, and the minute that you hear that they've lost a child, that they've had some kind of a loss, um, you know, you immediately feel sort of this camaraderie and this community mm -hmm. with them, and want to reach out right away. And then you just want to share all the details, and it all kind of spills out. <laughs> but I think there's something around, like you said, Judith, kind of that safe space where because we're people who function so well in the world um, and I'm so much further out from the, the trauma than both of you. And at the same time, you know, walking down the street, you wouldn't necessarily know that somebody's part of this very unfortunate club that nobody wants to be part of. Mm -hmm. so. And that's really what we want to talk to you about today, which is we're early on. I'm two years out. Lena's two years out, but you're much further out. And we, you know, I, I want to reflect on that first conversation we ever had together because, well, I don't think it was the first one we ever had, but Jamie and I worked together. It was a job that it was a job that I'd taken after Aiden died after nine months not working. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly scary. I was pregnant, but I was also scared that people would ask questions. It was the first time I really had to answer to somebody. I was, I like needed this. This was the first time I was really holding responsibility in my hands since the loss. And I had to make all new friends and I didn't know anybody and no one knew my story. And, and so it was definitely scary. And I happened, to, I was paired with a woman who was nine months pregnant, some amount pregnant. And I, I must've said something like, oh, in my last pregnancy. And then, you know, she was like, your last pregnancy. And that's how it happened. And then that person called Jamie. But the reason I say that is I think that um, Jamie was a perfect example of like how to support a colleague when they come back to work. Mm -hmm. And instead of like shying away from it, she kind of leaned into it. And I really appreciated that. 
And I know so many times people say, well, how am I going to come to work? I'm such a disaster. I'm such a shit show. Who's going to want to hire me? Who's going to want to work with me? How am I going to take, you know, how am I going to be functional? Who's going to support me? And I have found in my work that I talk about it amongst my colleagues very openly because I need their support mm-hmm. more so than if I were to hide it. Like I need them to know when the hard days are so I can be a better employee. Yeah, I agree with that too. I agree with that too. I think that it's always, I'm always trying to strike this balance of like, everybody who's at work is a human being and we all have our lives and they're all sometimes bad shits going on in your personal life. And like it bleeds over into work. It just does. And so I'm always trying to strike this balance of being authentic and, and true to myself and what's going on with me um, and taking care of myself when I need to. um, But also not like oversharing or making people feel like I'm doing it for sympathy. Like sometimes I will say, like, oh, and then, you know, my son died and my, you know, I had to come up with a whole new system for organizing my, you know, to-dos ever since my son died, which is just like a, in my world, it's like a totally normal thing to say because it's true. Like my brain just doesn't work the same, but every once in a while, someone will respond in such a way where I'm like, ooh, did I, did I overshare about that? Like that, that's just the truth of it though. Um, they weren't expecting. They're like, yeah. oh, oh. <laughs> Like I got, to, but I think what I wanted to say, I got distracted with my own story. But I want to say, Jamie, like, when we first had that conversation, when you called me, I remember thinking, "Oh my God!" Like she's, you know, twelve years out, thirteen years out, whatever it was at the time. I was yeah. like, "Okay, like this seems to really still be affecting her." <laughs> and I was, I was like, "She seems still sad about it." And I was like, "Wait a minute, does that mean I will be sad about it for fourteen years?" Like I, I look to you as someone who's been so much out, you know, longer on the journey. And I feel like there's a lot to talk about in terms of like, do you feel, you know, do you understand when we listen to the podcast, like, where are you? Do you, are you in it with us? Are you further out? Talk to us a little bit about what we have to look forward to. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I think that, um, I think one of my friends phrased it in this way years ago, sort of, and I think Judith, you and I were talking about this too the other day, the idea that like, the scar will never go away. Like your skin will never look the same, but like you'll be able to use that part of your body without it physically hurting, right? Mm -hmm. So not a day goes by without connecting to that piece of your history and your identity, but many days go by when you don't feel a pang of like panic or rage or extreme sadness or all the things that you feel in the very beginning of a grief journey. And at the same time, it's totally not linear, as I know that you all know and the listeners know, even a month out, a year out, two years out, no day is the same and no day is predictable. Mm -hmm. And things, there are unexpected triggers, um, you know, opportunities, like like you said, Judith, to sort of reach out to others who are going through similar losses and to, to be that sort of empathetic presence for them to sort of scoop people up and say, Like, I know where you are. I remember those early days. I'm here to support you. And and there's a certain level of empathy and support that someone who's gone through it can provide, whereas the average person who's just, you know, an empathetic person or a therapist or someone who's experienced another type of loss might try their best, but they don't necessarily know. So that's all Mm -hmm. to say that the journey is about kind of the ebb and flow of the emotional journey and sort of the trauma. And you two have talked so much on this podcast about trauma and sort of addressing trauma and treating trauma. Um, And I would say that I want to say, I wish I could say that it's like every year that goes on that sort of like the pain is dulled, but I don't think it's so much about like 
a chronological dulling as much as it's about sort of life becomes interspersed with the trauma. And so, um, you know, there's, there's like other aspects of life that, that trickle in to take up a lot of focus, right? Whether mm -hmm. it is, you know, just the busyness of whether you have subsequent children or not, whether you're busy at work, whether you're busy in your relationship, whether you're busy in your activities. And so the headspace that's sort of available for the trauma um, diminishes a bit. Um, but also I think like, and this is just my own experience. So I, I just want to sort of give the caveat that there might be that, that you two might say like, well, that's not at all how I feel. Um, and I can't imagine ever feeling that way. And there might be listeners who feel who have the same reaction. Um, but for me, it feels like as, as different joyful elements have come into life, there's sort of a, a greater hope and, and maybe a greater resilience, if that's the right word, that mm -hmm. kind of emerges and that becomes part of your kind of ongoing identity in which you, yeah. you have the grief experience and you also hold all of these other life experiences We've that come into it. We've talked a lot about how we think that the enormous pain and, and trauma and suffering that we've experienced has actually made it such that we can experience more joy or that the joy mm -hmm. we feel feels bigger because by comparison to when you're in the depths of a hole, like sometimes just the fact that it's sunny and your skin is warm and on that first day of spring can be like so powerfully joyful. And yes. I think I just like wasn't able to get into that headspace before. That's not to say every time I step outside, I'm like delighting at the presence of the sun. But <laughs> like... well, it's, I, I think that like, it's so cheesy, but you don't realize how good things in life are until you experience like these horrible moments where you're like, wow, just a normal day feels pretty amazing. Right. And I know that you guys have said a lot um, and I kind of chuckle, but it's really true. You know, like people kind of complain about the day to day with their living kids and, and you're like, is your child alive? You're fine. Like, you know, you're, you're good. And so I think in a way, definitely in a parenting journey with subsequent children, which I know I'm so fortunate to have and not everyone, you know, has or chooses to have after a loss. Um, but in a parenting journey after a loss, I think that there is this added level of gratitude and, and I sort of check myself. Um, before I complain in a common way, the way that people would about day-to-day -day life with their kids, right? I still do. Um, and I remember one time my very good friend who also experienced um, a really traumatic loss of her son said, you know, I was in sort of postpartum with my my daughter, who's my first living child. And, um, and I said, you know, like, yes, I'm sleep deprived. And yes, you know, like the breastfeeding is really challenging. And yes, um, but I'm not going to complain. I'm never going to complain. And my friend who had also had a loss said to me, like, like you should absolutely, like you have earned the right to complain, right? <laughs> so whether or not you go with that theory, like the point is that there's a certain level of gratitude and perspective, whether it's for a sunny day, mm -hmm. like metaphorically or literally, or mm -hmm. like just a normal day in the life of a healthy living child that you sort of have that added level of gratitude because you know what it looks like on the other side. Yeah. I'm wondering, I have another this is, question. Oh. oh, I was just going to say like zooming, zooming out over your grief experience. Do you feel like there were any turning points that you can, <laughs> Judith is always asking this question to like people further out. Like, did you feel a shift at one year, at three years, yeah. at five I just years? I thought it's going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously this is unique to people's experience, or maybe it's not at the year point. Maybe it's when you had your first living child, when that child turned five or whatever. Yeah. I could probably point to a few 
milestones. I haven't thought about this in advance, but just sort of off the cuff. Um, definitely, definitely the birth of my first living child, which interestingly fell on the death anniversary of Lev. So it was actually one year mark, um, which is, I know, remarkably soon to have another child. Um, and by the way, I want to also clarify that, um, that Lev was a stillbirth. And so mm-hmm. I didn't have the experience of, you know, holding him in my arms and sort of meeting him as a living child. And so I just want to contextualize that as well, because, um, you know, I, I always say to Judith, like, I could never, ever compare myself to a SIDS parent. And I know that there are similarities, but I would never pretend to understand that experience. And so um, that's to say that, you know, that that's why the timing sort of allowed me to have another child one year later, you know, was because I was able to sort of get, you know, back into the rhythm of, of trying to become pregnant, like, you know, three months later. And then, um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, had my oldest daughter on August 25th, which was the day that Lev died. So, crazy. um, right. And, and I was trying so, so, so hard in my mind to not have her be born on that day. Like I was going to take whatever action I needed to, to make sure it didn't yeah. happen because the due date was so close. And in the end, like it needed, she needed to be born that day. Like there was a little bit of a concern and she needed to come. And so I just took it to mean like, this is, this is a sign. This is like Lev saying like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. And so, you know, my daughter's name is sort of like the initials are the transposed, you know, initials of him and named after the same relatives. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and later in her life, I was able to explain to her that significance. So um, which is really meaningful to her now. And, and, and so I guess that, that birthday, which was one year later, again, with the caveat that like yeah. most people not have a living child one year after. So I'm like totally acknowledging that. Um, I think also that because of, um, you know, Lev having been a boy and I know that we live in a world of like, you know, gender sensitivity all around. So I don't want to, um, you know, place those, those type of stereotypes, certainly. Um, but because of, of Lev being a boy, um, my, my first living children were both girls. Um, and there was sort of a stigma, a fear, a rawness around the idea of like, would I ever have a living son? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my third living child is a boy as is my fourth. And, um, that moment of like giving birth to a boy, because I think in my mm-hmm. mind, having had a girl, mm-hmm. and I'm curious if, if, if this comes up for you at all. Um, yeah, but, I don't want a boy. I'm yeah, not interested in that. Right. There's something that feels like something may be wrong with me, like the boy thing, my body isn't going to do it. And so mm-hmm. when I actually had a living son, I think that was a moment of like healing in a way. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, Certainly that first year, like even though I didn't have a SIDS experience, I know so many people who have, and at the time I knew so many people who did from support group worlds and everything, that there was definitely just an utter nervousness around getting through that first year. And so I think that, you know, coupled with the first birth, like sort of that um, mm-hmm. that milestone around my daughter's first birthday was really significant as well. So those are just some that I can point to. There, mm-hmm. there may have been in later years. I don't know if that's helpful, not helpful, discouraging. No, that, that question is actually like right on line, in line with what I wanted to also ask, which was yeah. Lena and I talk a lot about how this is a, a story of our journey from the bottom of a pit to happier ever after, but yeah. not happily ever after, just happier ever after. And I had a naive assumption that we would definitely get to happier ever after. Like, or, yeah, I really think that I was convinced 
that by two years, I'd be there. By three years, I'll be there. Like, I'll have exactly what I dream of. And yeah. now I'm at the two-year mark, and I'm not 100% confident that I'm going to get a happier ever after. And yeah. so I guess my question is for you, Jamie, like, I happen to know your life didn't turn out exactly as I'm sure you pictured it when love was born. And right. you probably had a, a vision in your mind of what your family would look like in 10 years. And it didn't look like that and doesn't look like that. So right. I guess my question is, do you feel you reached a happier ever after? And what um, has life taken? Yeah. Tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, sort of back to the point of like, we've earned the right to have a sunnier day than most. Like we actually... <laughs> we're, we're earned, we're owed our dose of joy. Like we need like a big box of joy to just like arrive on our doorstep and like just stick with us for the rest of our life because we, we, yeah. we've earned it. I would say I, that is not, that has not been my experience. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it really goes back to this idea of like grief and the child that you lost. And also I will say like, I've subsequently buried a parent right? Mm -hmm. Like I've gone through a divorce and some of the things Judith is referring to, um, you know, and various other sort of aspects of life that feel like, wow, you're really getting punched in the face. So mm -hmm. I, I think what I've come to feel about the, the initial loss of love and also about just life's hurdles and challenges is that like, it's not about recovering and like rebuilding those muscles. So you're like more in shape than you ever were before. And now you can go out and just like have your best life. I think it's more about just acknowledging that who you are as a person for the rest of your life is going to automatically be and, and forever be kind of colored by, by grief. But at the same time, there's a beauty in that because I think that it gives that perspective and it gives that sort of um, like holistic version of life of the world. Like inevitably there's going to be loss and trauma in your, in your life and my life moving forward, whether it's this year or in 70 years, like, you know, God willing, I feel like we've all had our, like, you guys are good to go. You guys are not, you guys are not allowed to have any other trauma. Like, you've checked that box. But that being said, like, it's unpredictable. And as you know, and as I'm sure many people listening know, like, sometimes, and certainly you know, Alina, you know, sometimes all kinds of shit just, like, hit you in the face at the same time of life. Yep. And you're like, I definitely don't deserve this. I'm not seeing the kind of kick in. Like, what's going on? Like, spiritually, yeah. like, whatever you're notion of God or a higher power is like, and you guys have had a beautiful podcast on this topic. Um, but it just doesn't feel like it makes any sense whatsoever. And sometimes like that's exactly it is that life is just nuanced and complicated and layered and it always will be. And like mm -hmm. the beauty in that is that like, I think it makes me a more like sort of a fuller presence in the world, I guess, like definitely more empathetic, definitely more able to sort of I don't know if add value is the right term, but sort of contribute to like trauma in the world in the way of helping others, in the way of doing good, in the way uh -huh. of giving back, like in memory of those who we've lost. Yeah. Um, and also as a reflection of just like our understanding that life is a mixed bag, yeah. you know? So yeah. I don't know if that in any way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's but, really resonated. Um, I just feel like I keep thinking well, this was one bad thing that happened to me, but my life is not bad. And like, I'm going to get yeah. back on track and things are going to go exactly, you know, like I'm going to have a blissful experience like I did before I got pregnant with Aiden and everything was easy. And I'm starting to realize like, I might be more, things might be a little, you know, better. Things are definitely better than they were when he first died. 
but I don't think I'm gonna go back I don't think I'm, I get to go back on that normal track and like have you know yeah. my family will always look different and I will I may never get my happier it may just yeah. be like I'm gonna keep working through whatever life comes up speaking of speaking of your family looking different I want to ask you Jamie do you feel like when you when you were done having kids, did you feel like your family was complete? Because this is a question I've talked to a lot of lost parents about how they like always want that one more child, and they have to kind of think to themselves like, okay, the child I want is the one I already had, and they're dead. So mm-hmm. like, that must be a that's complicated. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and I I talk about this a lot openly. You know, the fact that I'm not sure I would have kind of kept going in the journey to have what ended up being four living children if I didn't sort of feel that I was filling a void mm-hmm. like with pregnancy, with every sort of child that was born, it felt like, Oh, I'm going to feel better now. Or like, this mm-hmm. is right. And, and this my is now, the one that's going to make me feel like my family is complete. This is the one. <laughs> right. And I felt that way about the boy thing, this sort of stigma around having a boy, like maybe when I have a living son, I'll feel better. Right. Um, and, or maybe when there's just so many kids in the house that like, I don't even have time or space to think about what's missing. But the truth is that's, I, I did arrive like after having my last living child seven years ago, I did have a, a distinct moment of like, I will not physically have any more children yeah. for various reasons. Um, but it, it, it was never like, sort of like we're all here around the kitchen. Like everyone that was like meant to be at this table is here. You know, I definitely feel like the presence of Lev and the other, you know, babies that, you know, were, were lost in early stages. Um, I feel the presence of them in sort of ways that like, you know, life will sort of present something and you're like, oh, that feels like a sign. Right. Or mm-hmm. like there's, again, sort of like that added appreciation of the children I have or the things I have in life. But I don't think that feeling of like there's been a replacement. It's not like, you know, a trade in. Where like, you know, looking at one, looking at one child's face makes you feel like, well, this is actually like the reincarnation of that child. That's not something I've ever felt, but it's not to say that others might not feel that way. I have another question about what you said when you said that your daughter felt really special, like she felt a connection with Lev because she had a name attached to his. I mean, Judith, can you you scoot a little closer to your microphone? Sorry. Oh God, this is going to be a problem. You tell me, Alina, if I ruined the whole thing because I think I was too far the whole time. Um, but I wasn't moving, so you that's know, you true. You weren't moving, so that's um, okay. Something else I'll say is, um, do I? Can you talk to us about how you talk to your other children about Lev and how yeah. you include him as a part of your family? Yes, that is a really great question, and I will say that my approach has been a little bit softer than some that I know who will refer to like who will the answer to the question would be like, Oh, I actually have five children, a son who died and four. Like that's not mm-hmm. something I initially say when people say how many I say four. Um, and so like it, it, it requires that next level conversation. Um, but I know that like I have friends who, you know, sort of like, like my one very, very good friend, like, you know, has a necklace and it has the, the first names of all of her children, including her son who died. And she says, I have three three children, two at home with me. And, you know, that's how she, so, um, so in terms of like how to, how I have presented it to the other kids, I was very concerned when they were young that just, and I think this is almost a, a luxury, if you will, 
it's a funny word, but of having the loss be the first is the ability to mm-hmm. kind of control the messaging with subsequent children. Because I know plenty of people, and I truly don't know how they are like still walking around in the world who have lost children and their older sibling or siblings have like seen the whole thing go down yeah. and are in their own grief process. And the parents then have to take on, um, you know, both their, their other children's grief and, and burying a sibling and then, you know, dealing with all of the fallout of that for themselves and their children. And I truly don't know how those people do it. Um, but so the luxury, I guess, was having the ability to choose when to mention love and how to control the message. And frankly, I mean, there aren't even really pictures in my home or anything because all I have is ultrasound photos, right? So those are mm-hmm. not like prominently displayed, um, but more sort of like in a private, like, you know, memory box and things like that, which again, I know is just very different from some people's approach. Um, but to me, it felt like I didn't want to ruin their innocence. And there was a certain age where I felt like because I get to choose, it didn't feel quite age appropriate. But I still remember when I told my oldest daughter, um, it came up in conversation. I don't know if the name Lev came up because, by the way, the name Lev is everywhere. It's all over. Like yeah. their school, they have multiple friends named Lev, girls and boys, you know, and non-binary Levs. Like they've got tons of Levs in their life. And um, lots in our congregation, lots in, you know, lots in all their circles, their camp. And so there's like a tin, you know, every time that it comes up, I'm like, okay, yeah. am I just going to say, oh, Lev, like you know, like our love, or am I just going to like, let it go? But back to my daughter. So she was around five <laughs> years old and, um, it came up somehow organically. And I decided like this, I didn't pick the moment, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with it. And I remember telling her about her brother named love who had, who had died. And, um, I remember she was like, she kind of seemed calm and cool, but then she wanted to go take a bath and she like insisted on taking a bath and she wanted to be alone. And when I walked in to check on her, she was like crying in the bath and it was just her way, I think of processing this information, but like trying to keep, you know, trying to be brave. Um, and you know, when her bat mitzvah rolled around, you know, the, the direct, this is last year, the directive was, you know, talk about the history of your name and the meaning of your name. And so I sort of reminded her, there's this family significance of the grandparents you were named after. And then there's also this significance about love and, um, you're welcome to talk about it or not talk about it. And she struggled with it a lot and she ended up not wanting to talk about it. And I, I have a hunch that it was just because of that same kind of privacy element that she maybe sees me exhibiting a little bit, like being more cautious about who gets that information in the world. Um, so that was sort of, and then now all my kids just sort of like it rolls off their tongue. Oh yeah, so sorry. That's her calling. She must have been a, I was channeling Thinking her. of you. Um, but you know, th- that like, Eventually in conversation, I think they told each they told each other or now it just kind of rolls off the tongue better with all my kids and they sort of say like, oh, yeah. And then they'll ask questions like, so if Lev lived, would we not be here? Uh huh. Right. Uh-huh. And then it's like an interesting I don't exactly know how to answer that question because you could sort of explain it in multiple ways. Yeah. Um, scientifically, probably not like the exact version of them that's here on earth right now. Yeah. Would there have been another child with their same name born at some point? Like maybe. maybe. Um, so that's kind of an interesting, like, you know, philosophical question around sort of like Lev's meaning in our family and how he contributed potentially to their existence. So they, yeah. they think about that. I know so. that there are some families though that struggle with that idea of like death talking about the death there's some that struggle that talking about the death and i wonder 
if that's come up. I mean, now like the died. details around the death. Well, like, just in general, like your your you know, I think your father passed and your yeah. grandmother and Lev, and so your you know your kids in twelve years they've experienced loss and death. I mean, is that yeah. something that you talk to them about? And because I believe that if we talk openly about it, then there's nothing to be afraid of. That's just yeah. my philosophy. So I want to, you know, talk about it openly. Some babies live, some babies die, like, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe almost too much. But I wonder how that's come up. Yeah, it's a really great question. And I've I've thought a lot and, and got a, gotten a lot of resources from like schools and from synagogue about sort of like age appropriate ways to talk about death with children, either just in general or from a spiritual lens. Right. Um, and, and they have experienced a lot of death and loss. Um, I think, you know, they've lived through things in history in the last few years. Like they've lived through George Floyd. They've lived through COVID. They know that like so many people in the world died as a result of COVID and as, you know, as as a result of other things, they, they hear about shootings. Right. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately they are kids who understand that people die at all ages in all different ways. They understand cancer. They know that my dad had cancer. You know, we just buried my grandmother um, a few months ago and they were there like shoveling the dirt and they were understanding that was their first, like, I think, in-person funeral in that way. They didn't attend my father's, Um, but they were shoveling dirt and they understood that my grandmother was like physically in that box. Mm -hmm. But they also understood that like, this is something that like, this is a, you know, in Judaism, we say a mitzvah, like it's, it's a commandment to, to bury a loved one. Um, And, you know, I think that I agree with you wholeheartedly, Judith. I think that the more that we sugarcoat it or hide it or say, like, let's not talk about that, let's brush it under the rug, I think that we're not giving them the skills to face the reality of life, which is that inevitably there's going to be death and loss at all stages, whether it's in their own family or someone they know or someone in the community or something in the news. Like, the more that they confront death as a part of life, the more equipped that they're going to be to, you know, to, to... to be adults and to be in the real world. So I, I think looking back, I'm not going to say it's a regret, but I reflect differently on some of the kind of packaging and sugarcoating that I tried to do around love with my kids in the early years. And I think mm. if I had to do it again. I might've been a little bit more open, transparent and given more details. I think the thing that they say is also to give, to let your kids lead. Mm-hmm. So sort of to only give as much information as they're asking for. Right. Mm-hmm. If you say like you had a brother named Lev and he died and they don't ask questions, you don't follow up with more information, uh-huh. but you kind of let them guide the conversation. Judith. So at this stage between ages seven and 13, that's sort of my philosophy on that. Yeah. I, I'm just realizing like Judith, we haven't really talked about your, your daughter's getting to an age now where she's cognizant of like, you have yeah. a dog named Rosie. She knows if you say yeah. go to Rosie, she goes to Rosie, right? Like she knows yeah. who you and your husband are. Like, yeah. how are you planning to approach this with her? How do you talk about Aiden in your home? I know how you talk about Aiden to me, but I'm curious how you talk about Aiden with your daughter. Um, well, it comes up even more so with my nieces and nephews, mm-hmm. my niece, nephews and niece, because they're a little older. It, they're like six and nine. It comes up a lot there. And I was just telling you that, um, my nephew, I told this like happened on the day on the anniversary of Aiden's death. My sister came to visit me and she was telling me how she wanted to buy an adult scooter for our family vacation coming up. And then literally we went on a walk an hour later and there was a scooter, an adult scooter, like on the curb. And so I was telling her son, I was like, look, Aiden sent a gift. Like how incredible, like, 
And then he was like, oh, my God. And, and then he was like, tell me another story. And I was like telling him these stories of signs I've gotten from Aiden. And he was so into it. And um, but then he wants to talk about, you know, I don't know, pandas and the subject change. But my point is just like um, I talk about it with them. Like I'll plan on talking about it with my daughter. Like we talk about it very openly and often. And I show her pictures of Aiden and I say, I have, you know, his name in all of his books. And I'll say, oh, this is a book from Aiden. And I plan to talk to her about it like very normally. We're going to celebrate his birthday. We're going to, you know, the only thing I don't want to do is I really want privacy when it comes to his death day. I think that I, I, I just, it's for me and him, I feel. Yeah. And I feel like his birthday is a celebration for the entire family. But it's not that I don't want her to see me grieving. It's not that I don't want her to, like, see me upset. It's just that it's it's private between me and Aiden. And so I feel like my husband and I are probably going to go away for that day forever because we need that privacy for us, as, you know, for us. Um, but I want to talk about him openly. But I also know that, like, as she gets older, she might not want to talk about it openly, like, you know, with her friends. She might not want to talk about that. Like, you know, she's not going to say when they say, how many kids on your family? I don't think she's going to say, like, seven. I'm not having seven kids. But seven, and I have a dead brother in the way that I say, you know, I have one alive child and one child to pass. I don't think she will do that. But if she did, I'd be down for it. I sometimes think, like, I can picture just so clearly, like, knowing what kind of kid I was, like, I can picture so clearly, like, one of my if I have subsequent children, which hopefully I will, I can picture so clearly them coming home from preschool and being like, I told so-and-so that I have a brother who's dead and they said that brothers don't die, that kids don't die. And then and being like, but my, my brother is dead. Like that's like the kind of thing that I remember talking about when I was a kid, like so-and-so said this at school, but like, that's not real. Right. And like, if it's just such a normal part at home, like it's not going to be normal at preschool to have a dead sibling. Yeah. Right. I, I agree with that. I will say in my experience that I think that the average like preschool teacher, elementary school teacher, even potentially, you know, clergy or other like grandparents, other people are not so equipped to have the right language to sort of support a child, yes. through that, especially in a public situation where everyone's like drawing like stick figures of their family. Yeah. And it's like Rosie and then, you know, my, my dead brother, you know, um, and it, I do think that it's for parents with kids that young who didn't meet their siblings that passed away, you have the opportunity to sort of decide like how much onus you want to put on your kids and frankly, their caretakers and their educators to sort of like carry that story on in a way that is not like, so I have a, so my niece has a medical condition and um, it's not one that you would know from looking at her from the outset. And it's something that they struggle with a lot because it's this idea of like, if you just share it with the whole world, it's an education opportunity. But it's also like a very personal thing that you can't just be a normal kid in your class when everybody knows what's going on with you. Yeah. You have the opportunity to kind of curate that and decide and just be a normal, like enjoy your life and not be stigmatized. And so I think again, that like, that's not a luxury that some of my friends have whose like children died and were already part of a community and everyone in the world knows that they're, they, they buried their sibling. Right. Um, but for the two of you and for me and my, in my case, like you have the ability to kind of decide what's important for you in terms of your child's mm -hmm. legacy in the world and what's important for you in terms of how much weight that sits on your living children's shoulders. If that makes yeah. Sense. And, 
And for all of us, like I can imagine from the outside, it will it will eventually wind up looking like we have a normal family, right? Because there's not like you had a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old, and the four-year-old died. Like, so, you know, we're, we're having kids, or eventually, hopefully, we'll be having kids for some of us. Jamie, you're, yeah. you've had, you have your family, but like, <laughs> you know, in succession that appears normal to the outside, and it just is not, there's a big gaping hole. It's just that the hole is the beginning so it's not quite as noticeable that's right and so i just i'm really i know i've said it a million times but i'm really cognizant that you know anyone who's listening to this who has older children that have seen seen a sibling pass away that everything that i've said probably doesn't at all apply and feels like way too much of like a neat bow to put on things that like you know i i'm in awe of parents who navigate that sibling component so yeah you know, yeah. we hear from parents that they're like, I don't know how you do it without the living ch- child. Like, I think no matter what the situation, like nobody wants, it's all, it's all freaking terrible. But we hear like, they get me up in the morning. Like they're the only reason I'm alive. Yeah. Like, all of it. like, I think people feel kind of both ways about it. It is interesting. Right. And also I think when you lose your first, it's this feeling of like, will I ever produce a baby that yeah. will be born alive slash that will live beyond one year slash that will not have this, you know, whatever medical, like, you know, that will I ever produce a child that blank? Um, And that's, that's a real anxiety that comes with losing a first that others might not, might not hold because they know that they're able or they have been able to have a a healthy child. Right. Yeah. Wow. I wish I had more joy and, and, uh, you know, we could, we could make it more of a, like, this is a, trajectory and you guys are on it and you're doing everything right and it's going to get better and it's going to get better in a year from today. Like you're going to feel so much better. I just wish that that was going to be great. I would love that. (laughs) I definitely would love that, but that's why I have an astrologer appointment on Tuesday. So (laughs) to try to move the stars around. I have an appointment. I'm des- I'm desperate for answers and I'll throw my money away that I don't have. <laughs> she was right about one thing one time. <laughs> After Eden died, I got like someone's like, Judith, you have to go see an astrologer. And I was, you know, desperate. And so I said, sure. And then I asked her, like, will I ever have children? And she told me, she's like, you're going to have a baby due in April or May. And I had a daughter in April. So I think that she's she got some things right. And so then I'm like, Oh God, I'm desperate. And this is what desperate people do. They throw money at things that probably don't work. But if it, even if it answers one question or no questions, it's worth it. Um, but anyway, that's all the point. I, you know, Jamie, I think that first of all, you and I talk all the time. Thankfully I have you to be a wonderful mentor and friend, but I think that you're on, you're being honest about what life looks like. And I think, you know, you're being, I think that, the way that you talk to me about your family now is like happy and joyful and loving and healthy and normal. And there's always, there's like this component that just like looks different too. But I definitely think that like your kids and you are happy. Yeah. I I don't mean to not like acknowledge that it's very much true. We have like a very, very normal everyday life. Like whatever somebody's life would look like with four kids in elementary and middle school, running around in a million directions, like screaming throughout the house, like all that, like the craziness, the dishes, the laundry, the activities, the, the joy, the graduations, like all of it. I'm so blessed. I have all of it. And 
I did not mean to say like, no, I didn't think that at all. I'm just telling that to myself to reassure myself. Yeah, absolutely. You will have like days that feel basically totally normal. Um, absolutely. Um, and at the same time, like, I think that you have opportunities that other people don't to like really give to society. This sounds so cheesy, but like, it wasn't so long after my loss. And I was like, why are you calling me? I'm like still a mess, but people started calling me who were having pregnancy losses, infant losses, and, and looking to me as like a mentor. And I felt like a, a total disaster, but you know, all people want in that moment is as you, and you both are creating this in the world in such a beautiful way that all people want is to talk to somebody who's been through it. And I think that mm-hmm. the sheer amount of, I mean, I, I could never compare to the work you two have already done, but the sheer amount of hours and people that I've sort of been able to guide through this grief process not in any formal way. I have no formal training, but just the idea of... But you've led support groups for many years. Yes, without any grief training or any <laughs> you know, social work training or anything, but just like stepping in to say, hey, you know, I've been through this. I get it. No story is the same, but I generally get it. And like, how can I help? And I think that's something that <clears throat> whether it's through supporting other people in that way or in ways that you, you know, will, will impact the world in your lives and memory of your children. Right. Yeah. So I, people write a I book. I have another question about yeah. that. Yeah. Because in 2008, the world looked different. Now we have Instagram and podcasts and you yeah. know all these other things. I think once you met me, I kind of lured you back into this part of your life that maybe you weren't going to support groups anymore. Like <laughs> it just happened to me that you started listening to this podcast because you, uh, because I, I had started it and I was talking to you about it. Um, yeah. And like now I'm sure you're on grief Instagram because I'm sure. So, like, what do you what do you think about like all the grief Instagram podcasts? Just like that whole space that didn't exist when you had your loss. Yeah, it's a great question, and I am so grateful that it exists because I think that there was a lot of stigma around loss of children, and I think that both on social media, in the news. I mean, you look at celebrity pregnancy losses that are just like highlighted in a way that they right. So there's there's like a number of things I think that have happened with high profile people, but I think also like, like so many things in society, like it's normal to talk about things not being normal in the way that it maybe wasn't several years ago. And I, so I think back in my day, which was like, you know, going on 14, 14 years ago, it was really this feeling of like, people aren't talking about it. People will brush it under the rug. It's hard to find people who have been through it unless like your OB recommends a support group or you happen to know someone who happens to connect you to someone, but now it feels like everyone knows someone, everyone's talking about it. Every time you say even the word miscarriage, people will jump in and say like, I've had one, you know? Um, and it's just not so um, stigmatized. It's the best word I can find, but in the way that it used to be. And I think that that is a real blessing. And while nobody should have to go through this, I think the world of support systems and networks and acknowledgement for loss of children and, and pregnancies um, is just so much more robust than it was even like 10 years ago. And I know from relatives, Judith, you and I have talked about some stories, like relatives or friends who will say, oh, I had like six stillbirths in a row and I was never, no one ever talked about it, right? Or I had a baby that died and then, you know, my parents told me never mention his name ever again and it will just make you sad, move on with your life, right? Um, And it's just a different world now. It's just a different world now, thankfully so. Yeah. And you guys are contributing to that in a really special way and, and also <laughs> getting me to check Instagram, which I don't know. <laughs> we'll just end 
by saying this, that I, that I, like I said earlier, I went back to work. I was really scared that I would be so different, that I would show up and I had all these colleagues that had their live children. Everyone was showing pictures of them, talking about them. I felt like I was going to be so alone. And one of the things that I have now found is that this sad things happen to a lot of people, a lot of people. And you just don't know that who's had what, yes. but they're, they're out there and yeah. you may, you, they're really out there in our group of 35 women or whatever, how many there are at our company. You know, we, I have, of course, Jamie, who I speak to the most about it, but then I've had a colleague who told me that she had a 20 week loss. I had a colleague who had, you know, a first trimester, late trimester, uh, late first trimester twin loss. Like people have had losses and you, when you're going into a new space, sometimes it's helpful for me to know, like, I just don't know their stories, but it's possible I'm not so alone here. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, you know, like, you, it's possible you just don't know their stories, but you're not alone. That's you're all I mean. kind of dealing with this. I think there's actually something, like, nice or comforting is not right, but when you meet somebody who's been through something and it makes you feel like you're a part of a community that you didn't know necessarily existed or was as large as it actually is, and so as, as much as I was so saddened to hear about your experience, Judith, my, my immediate feeling was like, oh, this is actually, it's helpful to have someone like on the team in this professional world that understands this. Because I think in most circles, whether it's work or whatever, it's like everyone sort of feels like a normal nuclear family. Mm-hmm, and yeah. like everyone's always like, oh, you know, my kids were just we're going on vacation and this and that. And so it's it's just nice to have someone who, even though you ask is also normal, fucked up, you, you know that they're also fucked up. I a hundred percent agree. I am a thousand percent club with you, Judith. It's such an honor. There's no one else I'd rather be with. I know. In this fucked up club. Um, thank you so much, Jamie, for being on the podcast. Thank okay. you so much for having me. To all of our wonderful new friends, we want to hear from you. Email us at aslongasimlivingpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at aslongasimlivingpodcast. We'll get back to you as soon as our grieving brains allow. Yay!